This is Amanda Dolan. Welcome to the Mental Society. Today I am joined by Doug Knoll. He is an award-winning lawyer and mediator. He has mediated thousands of conflicts. Um, his calling to, is to serve humanity. Uh, he executes his callings on many levels. He's an award-winning author of three books. He's a teacher, a speaker, a trainer. His fourth book called The Escalate was published uh, by Beyond Words Publishing in September of 27. And it is in four languages and it's second printing now. Um, and Doug's work carries him from international work um, to helping people resolve deep interpersonal and ideological conflicts. And this is what I'm most interested in is that he co-founded the Prison of our Prison of Peace um, and the Null Effect Labeling System. And in 2012, Doug was honored by California at the California Lawyer Magazine as California Attorney of the Month. So thank you so much. Um, I'm sorry, year, not month, year. Um, thank you so much, Doug, for joining me. Um, like I said, this uh, Prison of Peace project, I am fascinated with because it's really around conflict resolution and communication. So do you share a little more about what you all do with that? Uh, the Prison of Peace project was co-founded by my dear friend and colleague, Laurel Coffer and I, um, to train people who are serving life and long-term sentences in maximum security prisons, how to become powerful mediators and peacemakers to stop prison violence. We started in 2010 in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world with 15 women who are serving life or long-term sentences. And today we are active in over 15 California prisons, a prison in Connecticut, 15 prisons in Greece, a prison in Northern Italy, uh, Denmark, and I think we're going to be starting up in Kenya and Nairobi pretty soon. Oh, wow. So, um, we're, we've grown internationally uh, and have had a really profound effect in the prisons that, that we work in. And, you know, you, you said that you work with people who are life sentence or long term mm -hmm. um, in prison. So what why those instead of people that are getting out in the next six months? Our original model. Well, first of all, it takes a year of training to become a certified mediator. That's the first thing. And it takes three years to become a certified trainer. Our original model, which has now changed, but our original model was to create uh, each prison as a sustainable unit by itself, where we'd have to keep going in and training people, that we would train a cadre of incarcerated people to become prison of peace trainers. And they would take over leadership of the project in the prison and continue the training forward and we we would only have to come up and visit every now and then in fact that's been an extremely successful model in multiple prisons that we've worked in so it really gives the them ownership of yes program right. and so what are the benefits that of helping with this conflict like teaching conflict resolution mediation in a prison system well <clears throat> if you're in prison for life or long or for a long time you've probably killed somebody and what we've learned, at least what I've learned over the years in working with this population is that although they come from, many of them come from very violent backgrounds, they really don't like violence. Um, but the problem is that the only way they could survive was by being violent because they grew up in violent families, mm -hmm. they grew up in violent gangs. They were just, violence was the only conflict resolution method that anybody knew. 
And when you teach them that there are other ways to resolve conflict that are faster and more effective and safer than violence, they flock to it. They love it because they see how effective it is and they can see that they can they, they no longer have to do the gang life or do the violence in order to resolve conflicts. And they and they become really quite powerful peacemakers. Yeah, I love that. I think you know, I think you're right. I don't think most of us want to hurt anyone. Humans Humans abhor violence. Murderers are not born, they're bred. And how do you think like not learning that communication, right? You've talked about these people are in violent situations growing up. So they never learned how to communicate, if you will. They, so, I, I don't think communication is the issue. They communicate quite well. You pull so a knife, you're communicating very effectively. So, so the not, what they're not learning is, is alternative ways of dealing with conflict that don't require that kind of a direct intervention. And when you're when you're thinking about like that, um, a different way of conflict resolution, how easy is that for us to, let's say, teach a five-year-old? It's very easy. So how would we do that? You have to do it age appropriately. Well, you start by 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 modeling to the five-year-old, the kind of behavior that you want the five-year-old to engage in. Many parents can't do that. They tell the five-year-old to do one thing and then they do something different. So of course the child gets the contradictory message. So if you're not modeling the behavior you want, if you're not modeling peaceful behavior, you're not going to get it from your five-year-old. The second thing you have to learn how to do is ethic label the child. That, that's a technique that we teach in prison of peace. And I teach outside of prison of peace that trains you how to listen to and reflect emotions rather than listening to words. And when you affect, when you affect label a child, magical things happen in their brains. And the studies show that parents who have affect labeled their children starting at about three or four or five, by the time those children are 10, 11, 12 years old, they're usually two grade levels ahead of their peers academically. They, are, they have the social maturity of a 21 year old. They're extremely resilient and they're extremely popular. And, and it's all because parents have taken the time to learn a skill that they teach to their children by modeling it. And it, it completely, it develops the child's brain in the way the brain is supposed to be developed. Unfortunately, many, 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 many families don't have these skills. And so the child becomes, the child's brain stops growing emotionally. It's a, a called emotional harassment. And it's arrested, the, the maturity is arrested at between six and eight years old. So these children go into adult life emotionally stunted, which can lead to mental illness and addiction and divorce and crime and a whole, or let, to a lesser degree, broken relationships or unhappy relationships um, and never really learn how to grow out, grow beyond the point where their maturity was arrested because of the invalidation they suffered in childhood. And I know when I feel invalidated, I feel disrespected. I feel like I'm not important or heard and I get angry and I can shut, you know, I think many of us shut down. We right. don't want to talk anymore. We don't want to be present in that. That's right. So, That's a very, very common experience. And in fact, I would make the statement that most people have that experience. And, you know, I would say that I grew up in a 
loving, you know, home. Um, and also I don't, I felt very much of the, you know, children are, are seen and not heard. You, you grew up in the, you grew up in the typically emotionally abusive home. I grew up in the same kind of home, affluence, a parent, a loving parents, but emotionally abusive and not even knowing that they're emotionally. Right. Abusive. And I, you know, I know that for me, my mother and I have spoken about this, um, my mother did the best that she could. I, I truly believe that based on what she knew and, right. and her um, her childhood, how she was raised. Right. Um, and I've told her, like, you did your best and it still wasn't good enough for only, me. To only, Amanda, the, the, the thing that's that I tell my students and my clients, don't beat yourself up about the fact that you were emotionally abused unintentionally by your parents. Right. That you emotionally abused your children. We didn't know until 2007. We didn't have the science to show what was really going on. And now we have the science that tells us why this is so abusive and what it does to the brain. And now we can start changing. And we can break the cycle that has been gone on for thousands of years. And, you know, you, you've you talked about, I'm, I'm kind of going back, you say that listening with words is a mistake. So with strong emotions, yes, you do not want to listen to the words. Is that also like a, you know, you're looking at the body language, the tone of voice, like mm -hmm. what all is involved in that? The, the words themselves only can only contain 7% of the total meaning in, in a community of a human communication. Wow. 93% is nonverbal. And you're right. It's, it's uh, how your eyes express themselves. Um, what you hear is controlled by your emotions, your facial expressions, your tonality, speed. Um, body language. I mean, there's just a lot of different information channels that we use when we're expressing emotions. And our brains are hardwired to pick up on all of that right. and understand what somebody is feeling emotionally. This goes back for millions of years. We're, we're hardwired to read other people's emotions. The problem is we, we for 4,000 years, we've lived in a culture that says emotions are bad, they're weak, they're irrational, they're evil. And so we've never developed a culture of learning how to listen to emotions. And but, but I teach this and I can teach people how to read emotions in about 25 minutes or 30 minutes. And they're amazed at how, how powerful the skill well, is. I, I mean, I can only imagine how it can be life-changing for both the person reading the emotions on someone as well as the person expressing all of that. It must feel, um, I would imagine it feels very validating, like that you feel heard and respected and understood when someone sees all of you, not just your words. And that's exactly the words that people use. I feel validated. I feel heard. I feel seen for the first time in my life. And, and they're deeply grateful. Of course, because finally you feel like that's right. I, someone knows who I am and, right. and is honoring all of me and not just that's right um exactly right. and you know i i think about you know i have teenagers now um they are not great at communicating and and it sounds like i may have impacted them some with their you know not always validating those emotions and i i definitely do my best now um and mm. i know though that as a parent when they were younger with a mental illness and I could hardly regulate my own emotions that I struggled to help them in any way. You, you parent the way you were parented. 
Yes. And I, I do think I did. I'd like to think that I did better. Um, I certainly did things differently in some ways and other ways. I'm sure I did not. Uh, but now that my children are, well, my son would be upset if I didn't say he's about to be 14 next week. And then my daughter is 15. So now that they're older and like you said, I think you said most of us have, you know, not validated those emotions and not um, acknowledged their, the affect that was going on. So now that my kids are older, what, if anything, can I do to help them grow and develop those skills and, you know, keep them on that track of being ahead of the game compared to others? Um, first of all, I recognize that the reason that they're not good at emotional competency and um, emotional communication, if you were listening, is because they feel emotionally unsafe. Your children, if they're not good communicators with you, you've created unintentionally, no blame or shame here, just recognize the fact you've created an emotionally unsafe space for them. And they do not feel safe approaching you. So they shut down and they avoid you and they defend and they become defensive. And you see that you see this manifesting. And, and Amanda, you're you're a typical parent who loves your children. Right. And haven't even thought about the idea of what the heck is emotional safety and how did I create an emotionally unsafe family? I'm a loving mother. Right. But by emotionally invalidating your children starting at a very young age, they learned very quickly, usually by the age of six or seven, that they live in an emotionally unsafe world. And the way they respond to that is by shutting down, becoming defensive, becoming withdrawn, becoming emotionally unavailable because it hurts too much to to feel emotions. You know, uh, for you mentioned earlier before we started about having a family where children are to be seen and not heard. Mm -hmm. That's extremely abusive. And I'm not saying that you allow chaos to reign. <laughs> you don't. No. You, but but you don't you don't shut down your children's emotions. You you teach them from the beginning. I I tell parents that you have to become an emotional coach to your child. Your children don't know what emotions are. They're we're not born with emotions. This is the thing that most people don't get. We're not born with emotions. We're not born with emotional maturity. Right. Learn what emo we have to we have to create emotions, and we start doing that at about eighteen months of age. And in order to learn what emotions are and how to manage them and how to be emotionally competent. We have to have coaches, hopefully our parents, right. who will teach us by modeling first and then explaining what emotions are, how they work, and how, how to deal with them. Nobody gets this training in their families. Oh. And, and as a result, we just breed emotionally incompetent people. And in the worst cases, they end up in prison. And in less worst cases, you know, they end up in divorce or addicted or all the other things that people do to fill the emptiness in their lives because they live in a shell of emotional emptiness because it's too unsafe to be who they really are. And that, that makes sense because if, you know, it's, it's not safe to express yourself, right? When I was growing up, like I said, the, the seen and not heard um, and feeling like, um, I didn't share this with you earlier, but, you know, my mom and I, really struggled to get along. Um, and I think that part of that was one, my mother was struggling with depression, so she wasn't super available for me. I was trying to figure out my own mental health 
stuff and my father was dying of cancer. Yeah, uh, you've you got a perfect storm there of stuff that's going to obviously lead you to not become emotionally competent through in your family. That is, that's a given. And, you know, I know that that when I left, I left home kind of as soon as I could because it felt so chaotic. Well, think about it. You were emotionally unsafe. Oh, 100% I was because I remember one of, well, I'll share this and, and I'm curious what your reaction would be or, or thoughts. Um, I was told by my father in particular, while he, you know, was going through his treatment that we needed to stay positive and we, we needed to have a smile and we shouldn't cry or be upset because if we shared that negative energy, then that would make him sicker or less likely to you know, be here's what's going on. Here's what was going on. He didn't know how to manage his own emotions. So whenever you or his other children became emotional around him, he became very anxious and he would try to unconsciously soothe his anxiety by telling you not to feel anything, by telling you not to feel emotions. So in a way, it's it's unconscious and it's very selfish because it's all about me soothing myself, not helping right. you process your emotions. And that's exactly the opposite of what a parent should do, even if a parent's deathly ill. That, sorry, I'm just like sitting here. I'm processing that as you're talking and it. That makes so much sense. And it makes so much sense, too, that it's the absolute truth. You know, and I think, too, about like, um, you know, my mother, for example, who grew up in an alcoholic um, household. Her her father was an alcoholic. So uh, she didn't have good parenting either. So, like I said, I mean, she did the best that she could with the trauma that she had experienced. And um, I'm curious then, now that I mentioned trauma, how do I know trauma can shift some things in our brain. So how does trauma impact this understanding of our own um, emotional competency. Well, we just recognize that trauma is a defensive mechanism. That, I mean, when we ex are exposed to a deep emotional trauma, our brain has to protect. It's a self-protective brain. And so it will become, in many cases, hypervigilant. Particularly the portions of the brain called the amygdala grow. They hypertrophy. They expand hugely. And they become extremely sensitive to environmental cues. And that's why PTSD people are easily triggered because their amygdala are enlarged. Mm -hmm. And that's all a defense against suffering more trauma. The problem is, of course, is that once you're removed from a traumatic environment, um, your amygdala don't go back to normal size. You suffer with this hypersensitivity emotional sensitivity, um, bad dreams, all kinds of stuff and, until, until you get some treatment. And th the treatment that is proving to be most effective right now is, which is really interesting, it's being used on military vets who have suffered PTSD with tremendous effect, is a technique called counter strain, which um, has been developed by a, a bunch of therapists uh, physical therapists and massage therapists that actually reprogram and release 
the stuff that the body is holding on to that causes the PTSD and the, and the work that they're doing, they're doing a, a double blind study now with military vets. And so far the results are showing that in three sessions, the PTSD is completely erased. Wow. So yeah, it's amazing. So, so if you are, if anybody's listening and you're suffering from PTSD, Google counter strain, counter strain, and see if there's a practitioner near you. There are not many of them around. But living in a big city, the likelihood is that there's going to be one or one, at least one practitioner. But it's this is a brand new therapy. Um, but it's and it's being validated, like I said in this double blind study, and it's quite effective. And you, uh, I happen to know one of the guys who's one of the top practitioners and trainers. He's, he's he he does counter strain on me, just to keep me up in top physical condition and. Um, he's teaching, you know, he's one of the top trainers in the country. I think that that's interesting that it sounds like that, that you're saying there's a big connection between our physical well-being and our mental well-being. There's no connection. They're one and the same. This is another big mistake that people make. They think that mental illness is different than physical illness. Not yet. I, I mean, I always talk about mental health as healthcare, like, Right. It's... We should never talk. We should we should get rid of the word mental health. It's it's a it's 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 got so much baggage and it's yes people. We are physical beings, and when we have behavioral problems or emotional problems or cognitive problems, that's just a part of our body that's not functioning correctly, and we need it and it needs to be treated holistically and appropriately. And yeah. unfortunately, because of insurance and the 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 okay. economics of big medicine mm-hmm. and that's why there are so many people in prison the prisons are the largest mental health hospitals in the in the in the nation absolutely and i think some of that also has to do with substance abuse i think that the people well, who are mentally ill often self-medicate yeah they're they're it's called dual diagnosis and they and they have they'll have a they'll have a personality disorder or a cognitive deficit or an emotional deficit of some kind and they will try to self-medicate as you just pointed out and now they're suffering from both addiction and some kind of brain deficit that is causing them to be really unhappy and maladaptive and not engaged in good you know in conduct that a safe safe conduct right and like i i know for myself before i I wasn't diagnosed with, with my bipolar until I was 36. Um, and I, I had gone to psychiatrist after psychiatrist and tried to get an answer. None of the medications were working because it was, I was being prescribed a medication to treat something else, but I self-medicated with marijuana for decades, mm-hmm. literally. I mean, because for me, it was the, it was what worked. And also it was what kept me sick. I don't know if that makes any sense, um, but it helped me regulate some things, but it also made me so disconnected from the people around me that, you know, I, I wasn't living, right. kind of existing. Right. Um, and so I think, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm learning things about myself as we're, we're talking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, when we talk, you were talking about like mental health is just health. I I always compare, like, I will be on medication likely for the rest of my life. 
because my brain doesn't do all the things that it's supposed to do, whether that's because that's how I was born or as a result of, you know, something that happened that my brain didn't develop correctly. I mean, uh, it's, it's a complex. There are a lot of different factors. It can be genetic. It can be upbringing. It can be a combination of genetics and upbringing, you know, nurture right. nature. It's not nurture versus nature. It's nurture and nature. And really right. it's amazing that we turn out as well as we do considering considering what what, yes, we, what I, we're, we're born with and what we're what we what we're in the environments we grow up in and you know it's you know like someone with diabetes you would never say oh maybe one day you won't need your insulin well maybe they won't if they get you know a pancreas a new pancreas right that produces the insulin that they need right or more maybe they they can modify their diet um i mean there are a lot of other modalities of healing other than just allopathic medicine. And some of them are quite effective, but they're, they're not pursued by the medical people is because there's no money in it. And big pharma, of course, really resists the yes. use of, of non, non-pharmaceutical modalities for, for healing because there's no money. In it. And, and I know, you know, that, my, it's amazing to me how expensive, especially here in the United States, medications can be. Of course. I mean, I mean, the, I, the big pharma has huge lobbies. Oh, I mean, just for Biden to get through a bill that by in five or six years will finally allow the Medicare to negotiate drug prices with big pharma and only on only on five drugs, not on the, all the drugs. Big pharma, big pharma pulled out all its guns to stop that legislation because Because Medicare, Medicare is so big, it can, it can define the market and big pharma said, no way we're going to let this happen. And so, so the, you know, they were threatening everybody in Congress and, you know, that's why it was such a limited bill. And it's, you know, when you think of it from a policy perspective, it's just stupid it costs us as taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars that line the pockets of big pharma and their shareholders. And we we should not be tolerating this, but they've got the bucks and they've got the lobbyists and congressmen are susceptible to big money, just like anybody. Any, I mean, I think most of us, right? We we want to have money in our pockets. We so, wanna... so, and we're not going to make the tough call. And so, and they don't. And of course, now Congress is completely dysfunctional now. So well, yes. but there being any 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 significant substantial change in policy is is non-existent. However, I mean the point being that in all of this stuff, there is a huge conflict of interest between allopathic medicine and other forms of modalities, and it's all driven by money. And as a consequence, we we live in a very expensive, unhealthy environment. Medical. I, you know, I've always thought that, um, <coughs> you know. It's the the doctors, you know, drug companies, they want to keep us sick so that we keep coming back for more. Well, I don't I, I wouldn't I, go so far as to say that's an intention, but the model, the, the health model is not based on wellness. It's based on sickness. Unlike Kaiser, the Kaiser Permanente Foundation, Kaiser Hospital, they actually have a wellness model and their model is, you know, pretty cool, but they want to keep you out of the hospital. Um, however, most medicine is based on treating injury and sickness, not on 
there's no money in keeping you healthy. Right. Um, you know, I think, you know, we, and I've noticed too, like, right, you get prescribed a medication and then you have to be prescribed another, another medication for the symptom or I know, it, it, the it's side a, effects of right. the first once medication. You, once you get on that, once you get on that, that merry-go-round, you can't get off and it totally, totally messes with your, with every system in your body. And, and I've noticed too, you know, for me, when I changed my diet and when I started exercising, I got healthier overall. That's right. But that required a lot more work than going to my doctor and saying, can you just give That's me right. some medication for my blood pressure? But, but I mean, and, and we have, and we have a very lazy population. People don't want to exercise. They don't want to eat well. We have a whole other industry of big food producers uh, yes. who produce carbohydrates with a lot of sugar in it and a lot of salt, which of course causes a huge amount of diabetes and, and problems. And we medicate the problems because the food sources, the stuff we can buy in the market is of such poor food quality. Right. You know, it has no nutrient density at all. If you, if you, have you ever noticed how a supermarket is laid out? Oh yeah. yeah I always shop the, well, yeah, you always shop the outside wall. You never shop the inside aisles because the inside aisles is where all the junk is. That's right. what the cheap, the cheap non-nutrient dense food and is. The outside wall, you've got meat, dairy, and produce. Yeah, like it's all that vegetables. That's where you do your shopping, and that's where the most expensive food is. And so, actually, this brings me to a question that I have: is um, socioeconomic difference in this? communication and emotional regulation. Is there a difference? No. So this is just when I was working on, when I, you know, I'm a lawyer turned peacemaker. When I was working on my master's degree, I was doing criminal mediations. And I worked in very low socioeconomic families and I worked in very high wealthy socioeconomic families. I actually found that the the wealthier families were the poorest communicators no. and had the poorest emotional competence. Um, you know, I, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I grew up, um, going to a private school, uh, where wonderful people that I love very much there, but that makes sense because their parents were so busy at work and so focused on, on their careers and those things that, that they weren't as present for their children as their children, I think needed. And I think that that's true. Oh, I'm, I'm curious with this um, before we wrap up when I, I stayed at home for 11 years with my kids and I know that that is not the norm anymore. So having a parent at home, not working, does that have any impact on how these, these kids show up? Well, if the parent's competent, obviously it does. If the parent parent is incompetent, then, then it's going to make things worse. So it really, I mean, but then that would be the same. A parent that's working full time, if they're competent. Then it's not a problem. It's not the quantity of time. It's the quality of time. So it's really, how, com how emotionally competent is the parent? If the parent's highly emotionally competent, then you're going to generally have highly emotionally competent kids. And so people can, can go, to, and I'll, I'll make sure I link all of this in, in our show notes, but people can go to your website and you have a course available to help people learn how to do this. Yes. And learn how to. I have a number of online courses. I do online coaching. I do individual coaching. Um, I do workshops for groups. Um, you know, I work, I work, I work 
like like you said in the introduction, I work at many different levels, um, from working in prisons to working in schools, training administrators and principals and teachers how to deescalate angry parents and teachers, to working in corporations and large institutions. I worked at I I've trained the analysts of the Congressional Budget Office how to deescalate members of Congress. I'll probably be working in the National Institute of Health this year, teaching them how to deescalate people. I just I'm in the middle of training uh, a Canadian group of ombuds people how to deescalate their clients in the institution they're working in. I do private, like I said, I do high-end private coaching, teaching teaching wealthy people how to how to really be happy. You know, they've spent all they got all these billions of dollars, and they're miserable, mm-hmm. and nobody's ever taught them how to be happy, how to find happiness now that you're, quote, happy, you've made it, right? They, well, don't, they don't have the skills. And, and so I teach them those skills. And, you know, I think I've always thought that there's like a level of wealth that's like, you 70, get to a certain point. $78,000. That's what the science shows. When you start making more than $78,000, the incremental happiness you get from every dollar after that declines rapidly. And I and, and, and why do people chase the dollars? It's an addiction. Well, and, and dealing with their emptiness. That, and that makes sense. It's well, look, I, I may not be able to handle my emotions, but look at all of these beautiful things I have. Look at how and they're and they're all they're all shiny, shiny, you know, new new objects that don't provide any fulfillment at all. And so before we we end, it, I'm really what I'm taking away from this is when we shift and work with our young children from the beginning to name the emotion that they're feeling, honor that emotion. Don't do the you fell and oh, it's okay, you're fine. Right. That's emotional that, validation. Mm-hmm. Like you fell that like that must you must hurt or no, let's do it the right way. That's a question, right? Never, oh, yeah. So you fell, you're hurting right now. You're hurt, you're sad, you're scared. You don't feel loved and you feel completely abandoned by everybody right now. And hearing that feels so validating. Just like that, the crying goes away within 90 seconds. The crying goes away, the smiles come back, and life comes back to normal. And you've added, you've, you've, help that child's brain develop a little bit in that one little inter- interchange over over a decade and a half of work like that. And you're going to have a really competent child. You're going to be producing people at 18 who are really amazing human beings. And, and we need these human beings right now because they're going to be facing some problems that are really hairy coming up. Oh, I have no doubt about that. And, and we need and I, wanna, I want to yeah. leave though with the listeners thinking that just because they didn't start this with their children at four doesn't mean that they can't start to make changes now. I mean, think about it. If I can turn a a murderer into a peacemaker, you can, can, you can, you can reprogram your children using affect labeling. And it's really, it sounds like it's really just as simple as saying you feel this. You are. You're angry. You're you frustrated. Are. Okay, so not even a feel. You are right. And the That's trick it. there, there's a lot. There's it's very simple to describe. There's a little bit more involved in learning how to do it. It it takes a little bit of a, a leap of faith because the technique is so counterintuitive and counter-normative to everything we think we know about listening. 
And it feels weird to tell somebody what they're feeling until you learn that that's as you've experienced today, until until you experience the valid the deep validation that occurs when somebody listens you into existence. And there's a learning curve that has to take right. place. It doesn't take long, four to eight weeks, mostly most of the time for people to really get this skill dr deal, drilled in if they practice it in the way that I teach. Yeah. So, and it's life-changing, it's transformative. This is the foundational skill of life. And I can tell you that if we, if we had the vast majority of our parents using this skill on their children, in 20 years, we wouldn't have prisons. Uh, wouldn't that be amazing to... Yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's that powerful. And I'm sitting here thinking also like, man, if we weren't spending all that money in prisons, where else could we be spending that money to make? Who knows? But I mean, in California, our, the annual budget for our Department of Corrections exceeds the annual budget for our entire university system. And that that says a lot about a lot of different things, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's pretty big. Yeah. Um, my, I've, I am walking away with a lot of information that I didn't have before. And I feel like I have some ways that I can go about um, shifting some things in my family and even in the world around me. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, I don't like to name people's emotions because I don't want to disrespect them. I don't want to, you know, get it wrong. That's the problem. That's the fear that everybody has. And it's an unfounded fear. And that's the courage that you have to have to go out and start doing it. And, and it just takes some courage and it takes some training. That's why I have the online courses in my book. So you can learn how and why this works and then how to go about practicing it until you get comfortable with it. I, I am so fascinated and I can't wait to, you know, get into a course that you offer, read your book um, and learn how to shift things for my children so that they are more um, emotionally aware uh, and competent so that they can continue that with not just their generation, but the next generation and then forever on, right? As it sounds like Break the cycle. Are breaking that cycle, it's going to change the world. That's and right. I, I love that. Um, so thank you so much for joining me today and sharing this just fascinating, all of it. I'm, I'm, amazed. Um, you can find more out um, about Doug and connect with him, find uh, all these resources about courses and books and connecting with him for coaching um, at his website, which is dougknoll.com. And his last name is N-O-L-L. I will have that in the, the show notes as well. If you are interested in checking out um, the Prison of Peace work that he does, that website is prisonofpeace.org. Um, you can make donations there um, and read more about what they've done, um, which is just really fascinating. And uh, with that, we have reached the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening and learning more about how mental health and society meet. Now go out and open a conversation and discover how mental health is experienced in your world. You can find more episodes of The Mental Society and all the places where you find your favorite podcast. And please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on anything. You can find additional resources and articles by visiting our website, thementalsociety.com. And remember that you are not alone in your struggles. Hope and help are all around you. Until next time, this is Amanda Dolan, wishing you good health, mental and otherwise.